listening to FabRadioInternational.com and this is the book one, a show for bibliophiles, bibliophiles and bibliotechs, maybe. We continue the association with Starburst magazine, um, the world's oldest magazine of cult entertainment, and that includes some deliciously lovely books that we have for you today. My name is Ed Fortune and I'm here with... I'm Russell O'Brien. And we're being uh, held in check by the absolutely glorious... Producer Al. So, on today's show, I will be talking about monstrous little voices, new tales from Shakespeare's fantasy world, um, by a collection of rather exciting authors, and uh, what do you have there? I'll be talking about this forgotten name from the past, Tigana, by Guy Gavriel Kay. Goodness, we have not done any Guy Gavriel Kay on the show as yet, and that is something we really do need to correct. Um, But coming up next, we have the book news. is Fab Radio International. Across the world, the real alternative. FabRadioInternational.com If you want to get in touch with the show and you don't have access to an owl, raving or whispering wood, then you can use social media to get in touch with us instead. We are at Radio Bookworm on Twitter and that is the best way to talk to us. Alternatively, you can get in touch with us via Facebook on forward slash Radio Bookworm or you can type in Stobbers, the Bookworm podcast, and you'll find us there as well. We are also on Tumblr. You can tumble us. Uh, We're always up for a good tumble. Um... And again, we are Radio Bookworm on there as well. Uh, remember that we will be shortly becoming Brave New Words, um, but more on that in the future episodes. Um, so, good news. Um, the thing that's happened this week is the Kitchies. Okay. Um, the Kitchies are... Um, technically speaking, they're not genre awards. They are They are a technical team... Technically. <laughs> Technically, the technical themed prizes for works containing elements <laughs> of speculative and fantastic, um, and uh, the announcement is for the most progressive, intelligent, and entertaining fiction of 2015. We had a chat about this in the Starburst office because I, uh, because I was doing the run, running list of of prizes that because it's award season and the kids tends to be the first one, and um, uh, Martin Unsworth, who's the Starburst editor. Uh, essentially the, the assistant editor who does all the kind of day-to-day editorial duty stuff it was like Ed you've described the, this particular award, award as best and I was like it's because no one gives awards for best anymore they they give awards for progressive or intelligent because best is a bit too the Oscar goes too yeah exactly um, it, 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 it's, it's a bit too vague as, as, as a thing um, but still um, so the prize uh, this time it was in London Star of Kings um, uh, the winner of the red tentacle which goes for um uh, the most outstanding work um which is you know progressive and blah 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 um was margaret atwood doesn't does she doesn't do science fiction dear which is, of course is not a genre award uh, it's not a genre award it, it's a, that hilarious thing isn't it it's not a genre award she doesn't do science fiction despite the fact that a handmaid's tale is science fiction and if you don't believe it's science fiction then uh, outside in the car park right now and we'll have a polite debate over over drinks and coffee um but yes uh um, we need to week on tuesday <laughs> so it's all for for a polite debate no clearly a handmaid's tale is science fiction clearly uh margaret atwood is someone who's interested in speculative and science fiction but clearly she's slightly concerned that she might get associated by with star wars by idiots well don't worry about what idiots think and she doesn't to be honest she's you know over the years she's uh, had a very kind of progressive and understanding of what is genre um let's see who else um that's the golden tentacle is for debut awards um judges include sarah lots we like sarah lots we like a lot. We, we do. Well, oh dear. But, oh, come on. Well, she's the one who um, co-wrote the Choose Your Own Adventure Erotic Fiction. Oh. Yes. 
just did three in day four, which were amazing horror novels that you should absolutely read. But you know, I know producer Alan, I know what she'll remember. Um, the Golden Tentacle. Oh, yes, that one. <laughs> The Golden Tentacle <laughs> went to Making Wolf by Tay Thompson. Um, it again sounds absolutely amazing. Um, the winner for art, the Inky Tentacle, went to Sally Gardner um, for The Door That Led to Where. Um, I'm just going to quickly run through this. Uh, the Invisible Tentacle. Oh, one of the judges is James Wallace. Do you, do you get a prize if you win the Invisible? Do you actually like physically get something? Yeah, they're, 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 they're like these kind of stuffed plushy tentacles. And the invisible tentacles of some sort of kind of strange material. It's kind of cool, actually. Yeah? I like the look of the invisible tentacle. But that goes to um, to uh, works that are natively digital. Ooh. So this year it was went to Life is Strange by Square Enix, who are better known for their Final Fantasy JRPG games. That so gives you a rough idea as to where you are with that. Uh, they also have a thing called the Black Tentacle Award, which is given to um, Outstanding. Uh, members of the genre community this time I went to Patrick Ness um, he's he's, he's better better known for his kind of kind of thriller um, genre stuff Um, but he um, spearheaded um, a fundraising for Save the Children over the humanitarian refugee crisis so he basically got a whole load of genre authors together and said hey we've got to do something about this so yeah that's um, those are the kitchies we're always interested to see what happens to the kitchies uh, if you go onto the kitchies website the thing that's interesting about the kitchie awards isn't so much the awards themselves but the nominations because the nominations if, you, if you're one of those people that's like I can only got enough time to maybe read three or four books a year Ed. I don't I never know which ones to go for the kitchies is a good place to start seriously I mean the, the Clark Award of its 113 nominations is a good place to start if you're me um, and, and you don't need to sleep and, and you know you, if you don't read a book right now you'll die but if you're a normal person and I admit you know I confess most people will get through a handful of books a year take a look at the kitchies if you're in the genre it's a good place to start it really is um, and you know, you, for some reason, you don't have access to other, other um, recommendations. Like you know, listening to the show. In fact, if you want ideas for books, listen to the show. What am I saying? Anyway, time travel uh, novella to be published by Pan Macmillan, uh, Peter F. Hamilton. Um, he's better known for his um, sci-fi, for his grand space opera sci-fi. Um, but he's writing a time travel no- novel about a um, perfectly grounded teenager called, uh, teenager called Julian who has the gift of perfect recall so when he starts experiencing someone else's memories which are glimpses of the future he's compelled to find out um, it's been picked up by Tor commissioning editor Bella Pagan hello Bella um the story of Julian is one that's been, uh, Hamilton said the story of Julian is one that's been about my head for a couple of years now um, so while I was between novels at the end of 2015 between Three novels, novels. Uh, I, I took the opportunity to finally get it written down um, it's Peter of Hamilton you know it's going to be fun I mean you know when he goes off on a side project they tend to be gloriously fun anyway um, so yeah looking forward to that quite a lot about, uh, Barack Obama has penned the intro to the 25th complete Peanuts volume He's just, you know, he's just... He's just amazing. He's just doing high scores now. He's doing barrel rolls at this point. Um, you know, well, you sort like, of would, wouldn't you? You'd sort of get to the point of going, eh, well... But yes, yeah, so uh, if you've not seen the Peanuts movie, by the way, do. It's, <gasps> it's amazing. It's, it's a perfect reflection of Schultz's original work. And one of these days we will and do... they get the font light. They get the font light on the typewriter of Movies of Dark and Stormy Night. It's so amazing! I should explain for new listeners. There's a running gag on this show that we talk about where every time we talk about writing new works and writing new books, we say, It was a dark and sorry night, which is what Snoopy starts when he starts writing. Because Snoopy obviously is the, the character who is the, the typewriter that he's got out of dumpster so he can write books. And obviously, every time you write a new book, the first thing you write is, It was a dark and sorry night, then you delete it and start your novel. Um, but yes, so Barack Obama is doing the intro. Of course, you would. So uh, yeah, we should probably mention. Well, I'm a little bit hyper today, so 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 Ed and Ross are going to get away more than they probably ordinarily would. Also, I'm slightly losing my voice. Is that because you were standing and singing a lot? Yeah. There's an interesting T-shirt you're wearing now. It's like ten good reasons. Ten this, good reasons. Is that is that oh, is that the name of some album from 1989? Was it Craig McLachlan? No, it's the other one. <laughs> 
Was it Jason Donovan? Yeah. Did you go and see Jason Donovan? I did. It's one of the reasons why we don't have Rod Tame on the show is because he can't speak right now. <laughs> he can't speak. I can barely speak. I can't feel my toes. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, not book news. It's not book news. He's not he, written anything. He, he's probably written an autobiography at some point. I don't know. I'm guessing. But maybe in the programme notes he, wrote, he, he allegedly wrote the programme last night I don't know I've there's too many broken book spines in the world uh, um, that doesn't quite work really no it doesn't work move on book news uh, book news um, talking about uh, book conventions which we weren't um, the Pascon which is the Welsh comic uh, the Welsh version of Eastercon shall we explain what Eastercon is for those who don't yes. know yes Eastercon is the world's oldest science fiction convention of as far as I'm concerned, to be honest, uh, essentially Britain has the oldest science fi- had the oldest science fiction convention, but as far as Americans are concerned, uh, it doesn't count because they had a coffee meeting like two weeks le- earlier, and that's more important or something. Um, so Our country invented your country. Get out. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a, it, it, it's it's one of those things. So as far as American scholars are concerned, the 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 actual convention happened in the states, and as far as we're concerned, we actually called also a convention and it was organised, so therefore it counts. But who cares? Uh, but that was uh, obviously I did. But that was in the thirties, nineteen thirties, maybe nineteen twenty. No, nineteen thirties. Um, but the, that's kind of the history. But the first three or four weren't called anything, and they weren't on Easter, and then they became Eastercon. So, but there's been more world cons than there has been Eastercon because of you know, inconvenient things like wars. Um, <laughs> How inconvenient. How inconvenient. Anyway, it's been pretty consistent for, for decades, has Eastercon. Normally what happens is um, sometime, uh, each couple of years a different team takes over and organises it. Now, they've been trying to sort one out in Cardiff, or just in Wales in general, for a few years now, and it keeps hitting problems of the fact that Cardiff for your capital city is a small city and it's very busy and there's not a lot in the way of convention facilities and the way that Eastercon is organised they need to guarantee a certain number and all the rest of it and as we understand it, the 2017 Welsh Eastercon so Eastercon is a United Kingdom convention, it was going to be in Cardiff next year, it was going to be called PASCON which is very Welsh. Okay. Um, it's been cancelled oh. because they can't guarantee the. Uh, they've got a hotel issue essentially the the size of numbers and the people and all the rest of it. They weren't happy with something to do with the hotel, so they've said no. So they put a stop on it now. They're going to talk about more detail at, at Eastercon in Manchester, which is happening in two weeks' time. By the time most people are listening to the show, it's probably one week's time. But um, uh, Eastercon. Yeah, um, is happening in Manchester and they're scrabbling around for one for 2017. So there will be one, there absolutely will be one, but I'm going to be able to. Do you mind if I moan? Go for it. <laughs> Eastcon is a great convention that, because everyone loves genre right now, and because it's got an ageing fandom, is ne- is not going anywhere. It's not in any danger. But if it wants to be better and improve and be fantastic, it needs to stop doing this. It needs to be more organised. It needs to, you know, they need to do something. And in fairness to them, they're, they're having a very vigorous debate as to what they should do with the future. But genre and fandom has changed, and it hasn't. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's fine. Because we're in, you know, we're, we're, you know, everyone's making here where the sun, sun shines when it comes to fandom, but they they need to act. And we're talking years rather than weeks, but still, it needs to 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 get itself together so this doesn't happen as often. Um, on the plus side, Follycon. Um, which is the Eastercon in 2018 is definitely happening. They've already sorted themselves out. What's, sorry, uh, what's that called again? Follycon. It's in Harrogate. Why is it called Follycon? It's in Harrogate. Um, it's at the Majestic Hotel in Harrogate. Um, it sounds marvellous so far. They they have a, a lot of uh, things already planned. Um, really looking forward to it. And also it's in the north of England, which, you know... Convenient. It's convenient for us because we are in the city of Manchester. Have I run out of good news? Um, maybe. Pretty sure I have. Um, shall we get on to the next bit? Oh, okay. 
so there's this uh, obscure figure in uh, English literature called Sh- William Shakespeare. Yeah, uh, really. No, not really. Um, and, um, he's got some sort of anniversary this year, um, and obviously a lot of people have decided to jump uh, jump on board and take advantage. And uh, there's all sorts of things. You can basically Shakespeare events all over the country, uh, all over 2016. Um, there's a, there's a production of Hamlet at your local library, probably. And there's all sorts of really cool stuff happening everywhere. And Abaddon Books, bless their hearts, have kicked off with uh, a compilation anthology called Monstrous Little Voices. Why is it called Mon- Monstrous Little Little Voices? Well, it could be the fact that this takes the uh, five characters from Shakespeare and gives them their own story following, you know, it's the year, it, it, it's the year 1601, the Susquehanna rages on in the world, uh, and every lord from Nevers to Olivier is embroiled in the fray, cannon roar, pikemen clash, uh, which is start of the night, even the fairy court stand on the verge of chaos. So what they've done is they've turned, they've, they've taken the world of Shakespeare and turned it into a coherent world so they can tell stories uh, furthering on from the characters. So it could be, it could be that these monstrous little voices are the characters. Or it could be the fact that what Abaddon have done have uh, grabbed uh, three women and two men who are all incredibly talented and very promising authors um, and are definitely in the up and coming um, end of things when it comes to, to writers and we could describe their voice also as monstrous. There's also also the mostly female voices there. There's that gag I suppose. Um, so is it any good? It's absolutely glorious. Um, it's one of my favourite collections of the year so far. Um, let me try and unpack this because this is a collection of five novellas. So we, we open up with Force Meadows. That would be the award-winning Force Meadows uh, and her story, Coral Bronze. Um, Miranda, daughter to Prospero, feared so- sorcerer Duke of Milan, startles in her new marriage. Oppressed by her father and, lo- and loved by Ferdinand, she seeks... Free- this is a staunchly feminist story about you know about Miranda um, it's if you've if you've listened, read The Tempest or you've seen The Tempest and you're like why if I didn't get Miranda more, more surely she should get more screen time surely she should you know and you think oh Shakespeare it's product of its age Forza Meadows runs up with some spanners and starts fixing things um, it's mischievous it's mysterious it's romantic it's um, sympathetic and it features everyone's favourite fairy Puck. Um, these shadows did not offend me. I loved it to pieces. Um, talking about other stuff that I really liked, Emma Newman, who we've talked about on the show, uh, responsible for that other podcast you should be listening to, um, Tea and Jeopardy. Oh, by the way, the podcast you should be listening to is this one, which you should you should definitely share on social media and also like on iTunes, the Starburst podcast, because why not? And Tea and Jeopardy, uh, hosted by Emma Newman. Um, her novella, The Unkindest Cut, is. Hmm. Lucia de Michi so Unit Mari, ending a war that has engulfed the, wor- uh, the world from Navarre to Istanbul, but she has been lied to and made an assassin. Now, armed with new knowledge and accompanied by the ghost of her victim, she sets out to find the grievously deceived her um, and to try and restore the damage done. It's that story um, again uh, so many choices so many things you do, do Prospero Prospero's always been a strange and difficult ca- character um, it's one of those again it, um, I'm struggling to describe it because I don't want to spoil it and that's always a problem um, but we, we've got these kind of <laughs> what they've done is they've remixed stuff that just makes sense in the Shakespeare world they've just kind of tied it all together so I love the idea of Lucy being this kind of like this this, this hero diplomat badass it just makes so much sense uh, and possible being slightly not as not as um not as impressive wizard um, uh, again the course of true love uh, Kate Hartfield um, I, I have to admit I've not read any of Kate Hartfield's work, work up until this point um, I really liked it um, 
we have Obron, we have Titania, we have Pomona. Um, again, from so Midsummer Night's Dream meets the Tempest. Um, mm, nice, very nice, very nicely done, very cleverly, cleverly paced. Um, I also quite like Adrian Tchaikovsky's contribution. Um, it's very Shakespearean. Adrian has uh, talent for the verbose, and he has also talent for the lyrical. If you've read any of his other stuff, he he tends to he has a very considered scholarly approach to his writing that really works, and then draws you in. It's kind of that you know you know that steady voice and that steady pace. That's a little bit surely you suddenly read it. You're <laughs> going, I've just read this book. Oh right, oh thank you, Adrian, and then, and then off you go to the next one, which is why he writes so mass massive books as a general thing. Because he knows that you'll start, and then you know you'll start, and then like four hours will pass, and be like, "Oh, I'm hungry." Oh, why is that? And it's because of his kind of steady voice and his steady pace and his steady style. Uh, and yeah, you've got a cameo here from Macbeth. Um, we, we've got Canon. We've got weird weirdness. We've got Benedict and Helena and Viola. What he's basically done is he's remixed a whole bunch of the the Shakespearean comedies. Um, if you you know if you like a bit of hey nonny nonny and also a little bit of ca- casual ultra violence, then you will you will you will have uh, an absolute joy. If you have no clue what I've just said, please read some more Shakespeare. Um, Jonathan Barnes on the Twelfth Night for me, I felt was the the, the weakest, but also drew everything together um, much more. Um, yeah, it was much more meta than the rest of them as well. Uh, it's got Anne Hathaway in it, so you know it's got that kind of um, it's got that kind of um, fix to it, if you see what I mean. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, worked really well for me. Um, Oh god, I'll probably talk complete nonsense. Um So what's it called? It's called Monstrous Little Voices. Uh, it's available on Avadan Books and it's New Tales from Shakespeare's Fantasy World. So, is it me? Is this a live yeah, show? Yeah, this is a live show. Hi, welcome to Radio. I this, this is the bit where I come to schedule, and every week for the last two and a half years, you introduce an interview. Oh, I see. I, you see, I've got this book called Monstrous Little Voices in my hand. It's really cool, and it's really a bit of Shakespeare. Um, do we have to say that Anne Hathaway was Shakespeare's wife and not in Les Mis? I mean, it could be the same person, but I doubt move it. On. Okay, um, so we got a chance to talk to Francesca Haig, um, who uh, you probably know for the Fire Salmon, um, and she's got a new book out called The Map, Map of Bones. So um, let's give that a listen. She was absolutely lovely, as always. This is Fab Radio International. Francesca Haig, welcome to the Bookworm. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. So, tell us about the Map of Bones. The Map of Bones is the follow-up to the Fire Sermon. Um, so, there are two things going on, on on an internal level. After the events of the Fire Sermon, Cass is trying to to make sense of everything that's happened and to find a reason to keep going. Um, and in terms of the bigger picture, uh, the conflict is is spreading and the stakes are getting bigger. And it, it sort of looks backwards a little bit to before the blast that destroyed everything. Um, so it takes us um, both forwards in action and, and backwards in time a little bit to consider how the world ended up in the wrecked state that we, we discovered it in the fire sermon. Where does the um, twin motif comes from? Because if you don't mind me saying, it is quite creepy. Yeah, no, it's definitely creepy. I get that a lot. Um, 
I wish I could say something lovely and neat, like that I that I am a twin. My publicist would have loved it if I um, if I could have produced a twin out of the hat. But um, I think it's it's not really to do with twins at all. It's just about this idea of um, being really really close to someone um, and asking yourself the question of could I live without them? You know, whether it's a lover or a um, parent or a child. Um, or a partner, that idea of if I lost this person, could I even live? So the idea of the twins just literalizes that idea of if one twin dies, so does the other. I've made it a sibling bond and in a slightly sci-fi supernatural way. Um, but I think at its basic level, it's actually a very universal thing. It's being so close to someone that your life feels literally intertwined with theirs. It's got quite a strong environmental and social message. I'm always a bit wary when the word message comes into play because I think there's nothing to turn readers off books like feeling that a book's didactic and preachy. Um, I, I didn't set out to write a book with a message, but I think if you're writing about destroyed worlds and a scorched landscape, you can't sort of read that in this day and age and not think about climate change. Um, it's funny that the, the book deals with a post-nuclear world, a nuclear disaster, but actually I think... I probably had climate change more on my mind, which is not to say that we should uh, should give up entirely on worrying about nuclear destruction, but I think the, the more pressing and imminent concern is is the changing climate. Um, so I did, I, I did, of course, think about that while I was writing, but I would absolutely hate the idea of any reader reading the book and thinking first and foremost about its important social message about climate change. I'd be devastated if that was the message they came away from. I want them to come away from it thinking gee, I'd like to bang Piper and I'd like to have a coffee with Cass, um, you know, caught up with the characters and not with the, the book's message if it has one. Oh, Zoe, without a doubt. Um, I just, I loved Zoe. I had a lot of fun with her. She's um, tough as nails, really spiky, um, but was just so much fun to write. Um, I also really enjoyed writing Kip, um, and it's been really funny chatting to friends and family after they've read the book, um, because a lot of them have said that in Kip's kind of sarcastic asides and wry sense of humour that they see a lot of me. I don't know if that's a good thing, because some people can't stand Kip. My best friend is convinced that I only put Kip in the book to, uh, to piss people off, um, whereas others love him. And obviously I'm team Kip, because um, Kip clearly has elements of me, though I didn't intend for that to happen. Why are we getting so many dystopian novels these days? Um, I think it doesn't hurt that we're careering towards a, a mass environmental disaster of unprecedented proportions. I think um, you'd be mad not to have your eye on the end game, the way that things are going. But I always, um, I always resist the idea that dystopian fiction is kind of a new trend. Of course, there have been a couple of, uh, quite a few, hugely successful dystopian novels, particularly in YA, um, but dystopian fiction's been kicking around for a long time, um, and I don't think it's it's a bandwagon. I don't think it's it's going anywhere fast, and I, and I don't think it's necessarily a new trend. So I think humans have always been interested in the what if questions, and dystopian fiction and post apocalyptic fiction let us ask the really big ones. You know, what's the worst that could happen? What would I do um, in a broken world? How far does a society have to go down a certain route before it becomes irredeemably broken? All those big, juicy questions that we can get our teeth into with dystopian fiction. Why young adult fiction? Um, I'm actually not not entirely sure that it is young adult. This is such an interesting conversation that, that I've had again and again, um, and no one seems entirely sure. Um, I wasn't thinking very much about audience when I when I was writing. I think most, most authors probably aren't. You just tell the story that you have to tell. Um by the official definition of young adult, though it's always a bit of a nebulous term, then then the book shouldn't really fit because the main character, Cass, is, is actually in her early 20s for, for most of the novel, though there are flashbacks to her, her childhood with her twin, Zach. So sort of officially it doesn't, um, it doesn't fit with the characteristics of young adult, but she's a young woman um, and there are elements of sort of coming of age and and also because it was dystopian so when there was a certain amount of hype surrounding the book's auction um people were very quick to say dystopian female protagonist it's a bit like hunger games young adult um 
and I'll be thrilled if a young adult audience has um, has embraced it. But it's probably a little bit older and a little bit darker and more literary in sensibility than than some young adult. Um, I always find those terms are really, really useful for booksellers and marketing people and publicity people and um, in many ways less interesting to, to writers and to readers who, of course, just read what they want to read. Is genre publishing as diverse as it thinks it is? I don't think we're there yet in terms of diversity um, in sci-fi and fantasy. I, I think that there are tremendous... Um, strides being taken and really interesting work going on. If you think about um, female writers, for example, so many of my my favourite fantasy authors, and and I do tend to to read a lot more fantasy than sci-fi, I have to admit, Um, and so many of the best in the field are unquestionably women. Um, And, of course, this isn't new either. There are so many um, groundbreaking fantasy and sci-fi authors who were women, but in terms of reviewing space and the way in which books are received, women are objectively still at a disadvantage. Um, and, of course, it's not just about um, women writers and readers. There are also so many other aspects of diversity. I mean, the Fire Sermon deals a lot with issues of disability and it also touches on issues of race. And the, the big one that doesn't get dealt with enough um, is class as well. We talk about... Um, sex and gender and LGBTQ issues and and increasingly talk about race. But I think class is in many ways the, the great unexplored diversity issue in, in genre fantasy and I'd love to see more books tackling that. So we've always got further to go. If you were to meet the 16-year-old version of yourself, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Best thing I'd probably do is run a mile because I think at 16 I was probably a nightmare. You know those round-robin Christmas letters that your parents always send to the relatives on the other side of the world? There was one sent out when I was a, a young woman that said, <laughs> you know, uh, Francesca is doing this and that and she has a nice boyfriend at the moment. We hope it lasts because she is held to be close to. <laughs> so I think the first thing I'd say to my 16-year-old self is not anything profound about writing or having faith in myself. I'd probably say, be nice to your parents and shut up. Most 16-year-olds are, are just insufferable, and I'm sure I was as bad as any of them. What do you have planned next? Uh, planned is probably overstating it because I am kind of neck deep in deadlines Um for, for finishing book three of the Fire Sermon series. But um, I've got a couple up my sleeve, um, which, which take a bit of a sideways jump out of sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I've got a crime novel. Having worked in, in academia for years um, as a lecturer at a university, I'm, I'm dying to um, murder a few people in academia. Um, so I'd love to write a crime novel set in an English department of a university. Um, and I've also got what would probably be described as a literary novel on the boil, but literary is the most sort of nebulous and problematic of all genre terms. I don't really know what it means, um, but but sadly not sci-fi or fantasy. Um, I never set out to write a sci-fi or, or fantasy novel. It just happened, and, and I'm not sure whether I have another one in me, but I think for a while I'm going to take a little break and, and try something different. <laughs> What book would you like as company when you're stranded on a desert island? If you're on a desert island, I don't know why you'd want to escape. It sounds like bliss to me. Um, It would probably be Fugitive Pieces by Anne Michaels, um, which is not really cheerful reading. It's a a sort of very lyrical reflection on the the aftermath of the Holocaust, but it's the book that has become a kind of talisman for me. I, I discovered it, and I just remember thinking... Oh, right, so you're allowed to do that with language. Um, and and it's a book I never get sick of reading again and again, so it would serve me well on the desert island. Simpsons or Futurama? Futurama. Thesauruses or dictionaries? Thesauruses. Omegas or alphas? Omegas. Oranges or apples? Oranges. E-books or regular books? Or... Regular books for the love of them, ebooks. If I have to confess, for the convenience. And finally, truth or beauty? Beauty every time. Francesca Haig, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. This is Fab Radio International. 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 International.
you appear to have a book there, Ross. I have a book here. It's, it's Tagana by Guy Gavriel Kay. It's a Penguin Group book. It's... Actually, I just start. <coughs> it's a fantasy novel. It's a tale of an occupation. Uh, I'll try and summarise it as I can. In the peninsula of the Palm, uh, the sorcer- two sorcerers came from uh, two opposing nations and basically conquered it. Both of the sorcerers are have significant magical power conquered the land and 20 years on there is a band of very small band of uh, of heroes trying to rescue it trying to free their peninsula the core of the novel isn't just that the that the the two sorcerers exist and uh, and they have this power but also what they've done to the world the, the land itself one the province is made up of nine little provinces one of which has the mis- had the misfortune of having to kill having killed the son of what the the more powerful of the two sorcerers <coughs> as a and as revenge for this the sorcerer took away the name from that province didn't just strike it off maps magically removed it from the mind of anyone not born there wow so 19 years on with Gen- you know, nearly a next generation born who don't know the name or don't know the history of their the land they fled from. There are uh, this small band of people who are trying to bring it back. So it's the land that shall not be named. If you like, I mean, it, the the people from there can still say it among themselves, and this is their their shibboleth of you are one of the people who you know who who are definitely one of us. But at the same time, there are. Because you know, there are all these little provinces, all of whom have their own f- sources of pride and their preeminent um, myths about why they are superior. Each of them has their own reason to hate the, um, read the t- hate the two tyrants as well. So, while this one nation is partic- one, one little province is particularly targeted, all of them are trying to live under this occupation and trying to find ways to work their things out. Goodness. <laughs> <coughs> so, um, who are the main protagonists? The main protagonists. Um, the main protagonist, to start with, I mentioned, would be Devin, who's a young musician, about, I think, just on the cusp of 19 himself, so he's just turned adult. He's a musician, he's one of a wandering uh, band of musicians who, in the first chapter or so, is hired to perform funeral rites for a lord who has died um, at a particular time. <coughs> and... The band he gets to know include uh, Catriana, who's a, another singer in his group, Alison, who... I don't want to spoil things. This is the problem with the book. Um, Alison is... Let's go with it. He's the prince of this particular province. He's the, he's the third prince of three... He was the third of three sons of the prince of... of the then prince of Tagana, who slew this sorcerer's son um, in his own land. This is the the the, th- the third son who was never intended to be intended to take his father's throne. Who was wasn't allowed even to fight at the battle because he was too young. He was fourteen rather than fifteen, and has, was sent away for his own safety. Nineteen years on, is thirty-four and has been working his entire life not just to take back his the name of his province, but also to take both of the sorcerers out together because taking one of them out simply gives the other one domination over their land because of the balance of power between the two of them. So you've got to get them both out at the same time? Precisely. That's tricky. <coughs> it's tricky, yeah. Specifically, there's a lack of wizards to, to, to hand to help them defeat this kind of magical power as well. Is it one of those magical worlds where by having magic you innately become a bad person? Or It isn't. It's, it's one of those where you are <laughs> relatively realistic, I would hope, in that just because you have magic doesn't necessarily mean you will use it, doesn't mean um, you, will, you will use it wisely. The surviving wizards, because of the, the two sirens, will obliterate any perceived rival to their power, have been systematically persecuting wizards as well. Uh, and wizards, through their own power, are among the few groups who can also hear this mystical name Tagana. Everyone else knows it as Lower Corte, named after Corte, which is one of the other... Pro- Corte is one of the two, one of the nine provinces. Lower Corte is the new name for one of the for for Tagana because uh, the the two nations used to be ancient rivals. Right. So, okay. so they so they have named this renamed the nation after one of its bitterest rivals. They've renamed. They've, they've demolished its cities. They've removed its books. They've tried to destroy all of its music, and they've renamed bits of it after other things to 
to try and just completely obliterate this nation from history. So cultural cultural appropriation is obliteration. Yeah, and Gankovic does this with a number of things where he will pick a um, an element of history, something that happened in history, and he will retell it with a fantastical edge. So in this particular case, this is something which minus the supernatural elements actually happened in what would have been Italy I think about two, three hundred years ago. Yeah, I was just thinking that actually. Um, where literally province uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the history a, a province was uh, tried to, they tried to remove it from history they tried, you know, they tried to erase all mentions of it they, um, and continue. This is a similar theme Cultural, cultural obliteration is a thing that happens, uh, has been attempted throughout throughout history. Um, but so, but this is a, this is a fantasy age. So, is there is there a strong is there a strong theme of social responsibility, or is it more of a roaring fantasy adventure? It's. I wouldn't say it was either of those two. It's um, the the themes tend to be pride in you know, um, in how you know. You have this name, the, you know, the 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 feeling you have to bring it back. How important it is to do so. Feelings of love and hatred because uh, these the two sorcerers, one, the sorcerer wiped this name out out of, if you like, out of love for his son, out of grief, but out of hatred for the land that, as um, as it is, has not only obliterated this name from everyone within the palm. He's up, but um, the limits of his magic mean that he has to remain in the palm to c- continue the spell. He has supernaturally extended his life in order to outlive that generation who would still remember the name. <coughs> so uh, you go into the characters, several of the characters around the palm, you go into the, the heads of both sorcerers to an extent, as well as the main protagonists, and you get a very political sense of, what, of, of all the manipulations of what's going on. So while there is... There is combat. There is between uh, you know, various forces. You get the sense of this has been a battle for nineteen years. Of, this has been slow building. This has been meeting people who meet feel the same way we do. This is uh, making contacts. People listening in the right places. Uh, informants here or there, and a lot of political implications. There are a lot. It's I mean, it's a six hundred something page book, and it is well paced in that. Every so what you, you will get sections where the characters literally tell other characters to slow down. Can you explain what you've just said? Because I don't understand the full implications of this. So, nice. Um, you, you, you've said this as though it should mean something. What Can you go into that depth? And sometimes that will be you know, can just the, the feelings of the characters themselves. And sometimes that will be, no, hang on, why would... Why would doing this thing in Midsummer be a particular significance? Um, you know, why is... Why is attacking this place, particularly in this nation where they feel particularly strongly about a certain thing, that would have resonance. And so, you know, you get the sense of propaganda building up and uh, messages being sent, and this great sense of these certain things have very great significance. Each province has its own distinct cultural identity, which is why the the, the whole thing that Tagana has had its actual name removed from from living memory uh, for, for everyone else, because obviously. You may have your own identity, but if no one, if there's no one in the world to acknowledge that identity, then that identity is less valid. So there's, there's that whole um, g- gathering. There's that theme going on as well. So it's patriotism and identity and that sort of thing. It is, but these there's you know, this senses of common uh, commonality to it because it sounds very Guy Gavriel K, which it is uh, conveniently uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> appropriately enough, it is by Guy Gavriel K. Yes, um, so yes, as you like, various characters will remark that they are in a sense victims of this curse because they can are the, the ones who can still hear the name. Some of them are victims because they can't hear the name. Their name will be said and then they can't remember it. Their minds just cannot hear the word. Um, there's a reason I started with with you know this introduction at the start of this show with the, a forgotten tale a tale of a forgotten name from a long time ago. Um, yeah. So so what's it called again? <laughs> Can you hear the name? I just said it. Did you hear it? <laughs> no. I, I'm confused now. I don't think you were born in the land of. <laughs> it's called Tagana, uh, and uh, I've read it uh, happily a number of times now. Uh, 
so yeah, this is must, I've been reading it recently because it's my f- fourth or fifth reread. I'm sure by now. On that subject, if anyone else remembers the Marvel movie The Sentry, they can get in touch with us at Radio Bookworm uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, I mean, everyone thinks that the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe started off with Iron Man, but it was The Sentry, as far as I can remember. That was a huge cultural hit. I've still got the T-shirt somewhere. Shall we move on to the discussion? We shall. We filmed it and everything. Um, got monstrous. Uh, we were told off for calling Penguin Random House Random Penguin, so we call it Random Penguin these days. Uh, we've got monstrous little voices uh, by a variety of authors, including Foss Meadows, Emma Newman, Adrian Tchaikovsky, Kate Hartfield, and Jonathan Barnes, and that's on Baden Books. Um, and we also interviewed. Introduced, interviewed. Is it, is it just, just a, a sort of um, the nature of our show and then things that people send us to review? Or is there like a, an upsurge in anthologies of short stories at the moment? I seem to see more of those coming through in our last maybe six to twelve. There, there is. Hang on, I, I was just going to. Sorry. Francesca Haig uh, has her book The Map Bones that's coming out soon you should read that as well sequel to Fire Sermon that was our interview um, yes that's a short answer to that question I think there is and the reason I think that is is this uh, everyone these days has these little black boxes that they carry in their hands with these tiny screens and some of us have e-readers but most of us tend to read on our phones and the format for reading on you because the thing is, is I have had that situ- situation I read a lot as you probably gathered but I, I tend to uh, be found on the tube and I've, I've had people wander up to me and like literally grab my book and pull it down so they can have a conversation with me random idiots on, 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 on the train and it's just like you know they, they think I'm making some sort of statement by reading a book like you know they, they basically think yeah, this, is, this is rougher areas but they think I'm being a bit strange by reading a book and you can't people people will, will you know weirdly think it's a bit odd sometimes but if you've got your phone no one cares and no one knows what you're reading yeah. hmm. I've not heard this same with e-readers right um, you can you basically you can be in a situation where say you're reading uh, say you're reading the story of all on the tube as you, you do you perhaps might not want everyone to see that you're reading the story of on the tube um, you shouldn't really care but it happens um, with, a, with a mobile phone no one knows you could just be reading Facebook but the thing with mobile phones getting back to producer Al's point eventually um, is that short stories are really easy to read on the tube and on the train and on the, the Metrolink and this sort of thing because you just like it's a short story it will last you your 15 minute journey and then you can read the next one um, I've got an anthology from Storm Constantine which we'll have to get around to in an upcoming show and it was just great just to just dive in I didn't read it from cover to cover I, I read every story there but I picked, picked depending on my mood and that's what you can do with anthologies mm. the other thing with, with this one is uh, with uh, Monstrous Little Voices is that you can do the thing where you can buy separate anthology uh, novellas so if you only really care about Emma Newman for example um, and in fairness if you're just going to buy two of the stories I'd go for the Force Medals one and the Emma Newman one um, then you can buy them separately as e- e-books and you get lots of e- <coughs> e-anthologies uh, available whereas <coughs> Tagana is um, 600 pages long and you know if you dropped it on the dog you'd probably hurt the dog so it certainly hurt your foot if you dropped it on it um, but you know this. Um, keep on talking <laughs> I, 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 was, I, I was going to keep on talking but um, yeah 
I like the idea of a town going missing in people's memory and that, that whole thing that, you know, stories <coughs> only matter for as long. And actually that's relevant this week of all weeks because this is the week that Terry Pratchett died. Probably for Well, anniversary. It's, been, yeah, it's the anniversary of his, uh, the, the year anniversary of his death. And uh, people are doing the thing where they're still saying his name because as long as people still say his name, he's still with us in some way. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, uh, Connor, I suppose, is an appropriate book to talk about in the sense that it's, you know, as long as people are talking about a city that's no longer there, then it's something that's still there and still exists and that sort of, you know, there was a place, there was a time, and now there's no one left, so now, now it no longer exists. Stories and memories and things passing into myth and that sort of meta-narrative that we get with storytelling. If I misuse the phrase meta- meta-narrative, at Radio Bookman. I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, <laughs> okay, first... <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a cultural identity thing rather than a personal identity thing, which is one of those ongoing one one of those one of those things that a lot of storytellers do. We were talking we were talking a little while about language and the fact that you can use language to build worlds. Hmm. Um, but you can also use uh, you can create identities to build worlds as well. Um, but yes. It's Fab Radio International. International. Join me, Paul Ripley, every Sunday. And join me every Sunday, Stephen Wilson. That doesn't make sense, does it, Steve? No. This is Fab Radio International. I've been Ed Fortune, and for the rest of the day, I will be playing games. I'm Ross O'Brien. I'm going to keep talking. The Book Room is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Ross O'Brien. Produced by Anne Davis. <laughs>